Good morning to Dr. Marvin Trotter. Doctor, what's our featured guest going to be speaking about today? Very interesting topic. First one uh, we've ever done on wilderness medicine. Dr. Haley Rausek, uh, who's a resident in the family practice program. So it'll be very interesting. I'm completely ignorant of the topic, but she is not. Um, Dr. Rausek? Hi. 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 Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It'll be an interesting show. We'll all learn something. Um, first of all, let's hear a little bit about how you got to Mendocino County. Yeah. So like most of the other residents, we're lucky enough to get to know the area um, through the residency program. It's wonderful so far, and we're just getting settled in. So, so thanks for welcoming us. Sure. Sure. The residency program, if people don't know, there's 12 people here in first and second year residents of a family residency program. So in uh, a total of three years, they'll be board certified in family practice uh, uh, medicine. Um, tell us a little bit about that stuff. And where did you move from to here? Why did you select Mendocino County? Oh, yeah. So... Um Looking forward to being a family med doc uh, officially and um, getting lots of training here in the Mendocino area. Um, I'm originally from the Mammoth Lakes area outside of Yosemite and um, have been in the Sacramento area for a while doing schooling and training. Okay. So tell us about, I'm sorry, I have something in my throat. Tell us about wilderness medicine. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about wilderness medicine because there's so many wonderful benefits of being outside and hiking and playing, especially with all of our um, challenges currently with the pandemic and having That's to isolate true. ourselves from our more social community. There's a lot of different things we can do outside to just be well and healthy and have fun and find um, relaxation and peace. And so I wanted to talk about different ways to make sure that's safe and um, what to do when challenging situations arise. So did you, uh, I have a lot. Of, mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So I have a lot of experience playing outdoors and um, spent some time on a um, search and rescue team oh, and really? grew up doing a lot of that stuff and um, wanted to share with, with everyone some simple things they can do to stay safe. The, the, um, that was one of my questions. Did you grow up outside a lot and hiking and, you know, from where you grew up, were you outdoors a lot? Yeah, yeah. So from before I could walk, I've been camping, <laughs> being really? towed along in my parents' backpack. And, uh, yeah, I grew up on a llama ranch out there, and uh, we would do a lot of multi-week trips where the llamas would carry all of our stuff, and my parents would carry me, and um, just growing up spending a lot of time outdoors and playing and uh, navigating difficult situations with um, extreme sports, lots of climbing and all sorts of things out there that is super fun but can lead to some challenging situations. Gave me some experience and how to stay safe. Okay, where would you like to start? Well, sure. Um, so just for everybody who's new to wilderness medicine, uh, it's really just about providing good emergency care in remote settings. That's really all there is to it. Um, But a lot can be done as far as prevention. I'm sure most everyone knows, you know, it's important to take things that um, 
are going to help keep you prepared for if situations change with you when you start out on your hike. So um, things that I always like to bring are backup jackets and rain gear because you never know how the weather is going to change. And if for some reason you get stuck out there or get lost, it's really nice to have uh, jackets and things to stay warm at night while the search and rescue teams are looking for you. That simple thing of having jackets, um, and warm clothes can make the difference between you surviving a situation where you're lost or injured um, in the backcountry and giving people enough time to find you. So no matter what, always bring a jacket. <laughs> and then having good shoes um, and um, sun protection is really important. Your skin does a lot to regulate your temperature. So, you know, if you get super sunburned, um, it's harder to regulate your temperature when you're cold at night. And so making huh. sure you have jackets and sunscreen and things like that can go a long way in um, helping you survive should there be an emergency. And, you know, as a doctor, I have to put my plug in for skin cancer prevention. Take care of your skin. <laughs> right. I heard that melanoma has a lot to do with how much sun you got before the age of 18. Have you heard that one? Um, I have heard it more in the context of um, how many sunburns you get in your life overall. Okay. And same way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Same thing. It sounds like, um, and certainly I know a lot of us got a lot, at least me being from California, got a lot of sun as a kid. <laughs> so definitely making yeah. your kids wear sunscreen, I think, goes a long way to prevent melanoma and other types of skin cancer. Um, it just what, blew my mind that um, anyone would be able to count the number of sunburns they've had, but, you know, <laughs> it's definitely a thing. I remember once where I completely denuded myself from being on the beach in Galveston, Texas, uh, as an elementary school uh, kid, but other than that, I don't remember. Um, Mark Lovato <laughs> once said that he we went on hikes and he was wearing tennis shoes while I was wearing my, you know, vibrant sole boots. And he argued back and forth as to what was appropriate and how easy it was to hike or okay and what sort of shoes do you wear? Yeah, well, you know, it kind of depends on um, what shoes you need. Some people have really strong ankles and never roll their ankles and prefer a lighter hiking mm. slash running shoe just um to have more aeration in their feet and have it be lighter for them and more comfortable. I, however, tend to roll my ankle all the time and therefore need the burly hiking boot with all the ankle support and a bunch of ace bandages with me. So <laughs> I think it just depends on, you know, how clumsy you are and how your, how your feet handle the wilderness. Um, okay. Um, so what's the most common problem that people run into is it is it not um um turning their ankle is that probably the number one or what's yeah rolling your ankle and spraining your ankle is pretty common i mean i'm sure most of us here have done it you know you're running around you miss step and you roll it and that usually is associated with stretching of the ligaments on the outside of your feet and can cause little breakages and blood vessels and that's what swelling and bruising you get right away. And so um, when you're running around on unstable terrain, it's really helpful to maintain a good mental attitude of don't sprain your ankle, don't sprain your ankle, don't sprain your ankle, <laughs> and take really careful steps. 
I know when I um, just recently went down uh, Mount Shasta and we had um, crampons on our feet, which are little spikes that help you um, stay in the snow when you're hiking on slippery terrain. And it's real easy to sprain your ankle. And every step on the way down is don't sprain your ankle, don't sprain your ankle. Because, you know, you can slip, fall, sprain your ankle, and slide down a mountain. So any unstable terrain, it's helpful to pay more close attention, I feel like. <laughs> and do you do you use ace bandages? Do you use those sleeves that you pull on your ankle or, or a particular tape? Or how do you treat your ankle sprain if you get one? Yeah, so... Um, I prefer the ACE bandages because they're, you can use them for a bunch of different things. And um, it's nice. Everybody's feet is a different size, and it's nice to be able to wrap it tighter around areas that hurt more, um, depending upon where your ankle sprain is. And so I usually bring at least two when I hike just because, you know, luck may have it that you sprain both your ankles or <laughs> someone else on the team needs one as well. Um, and they're really multi-use. If you um, need to splint yourself, which I'll talk about later, um, they can serve as a great resource for that as well. Or if somebody hurts their knee, you can wrap your knee, mm -hmm. shoulder, all the different things. So it's a great multi-use item to have. And they're super light and cheap. So, Good point. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. ever, because you hike a lot and have had ankle problems before are you one of these people that tape your ankles before you go hiking no i don't although um i would love to learn from some of my pt colleagues if that's something they would recommend um, i usually just do a lot of exercises to strengthen them um, one of which i was told was good is uh in the morning tracing the alphabet out with your feet so pointing your toes and doing A, B, C, D, and really moving those ankle muscles all around um, and doing a lot of those exercises. And then I'm sure my PT colleagues could chime in with much more um, helpful tips. Okay. So ankle yeah. sprains. What's, what's next on your list? Yeah. Um, so other things uh, that are important to remember when you're going out is, you know, water water usage and clean water resources. And there's a bunch of fun gear out there that can help you filter your water and make sure it's safe to drink. Um, I, they have these cool straws now that have a micro filter in them. And these are the probably the lightest, lowest tech thing, um, but you can just drink out of any stream, and it filters out all the um, particles of anything that might cause you to get sick. Not viruses, but everything else. Viruses are the tiniest of the particles. But usually the things that make you sick when you're drinking out of stream water is bacteria and spores, and those little straws do a great job filtering. Um, other things are your more traditional water pump where you can, you know, pump it back and forth and really build up your arm strength and get yourself a lot of um, tasty water, water bottles of fresh water. And then they have this other thing called um, a SteriPen, which is pretty great. It uses UV light. And that's been my latest favorite because huh. it's pretty lightweight and it's pretty easy to carry. And you just take it out, you dump your dunk your water bottle in the stream, and you stick what's basically like a glowing straw in the water and swirl it around for a minute. And the UV light sterilizes the water, and then wow. you can drink it afterwards. Never heard and of that. And that includes 
Yeah, it's a great, great new invention. And that includes um, spores, too, which are really hard to kill. And those are the things like Giardia that cause us so many problems when we're drinking out of stream waters in California. I had Giardia once. It was not a pleasant experience. Um, I diagnosed myself after a few days. Um, Actually came from daycare. But I heard that Giardia is the number one thing, but is that just uh, the textbook stuff about how how frequently do you run in? Or explain Giardia, and is it that much of a problem drinking out of a mountain stream? Yeah, yeah. So Giardia comes from poop, and so all the the creatures in the wilderness, um, it's really kind of in everybody, and so a squirrel or deer or anything poops near a stream and it gets in the water and breaks down and you have these little spores that can last forever in the stream and the bacteria themselves. And so you go to drink out of the stream, it gets in your gut and that's what gives you Giardia. Or for me, uh, I got it off of water that was off of strawberries in a field and got Giardia that way. So lots of different ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's pretty miserable, as, you know, we've both experienced. I you thought have, so. Oh, yeah, a large, of really, large amount of really foul-smelling diarrhea and flatulence. And if you just drink stream water a couple of days before, that's a pretty good sign you got it. And come mm. on in, see us, and we'll give you some meds to help you get over it, because it only gets worse. It's, it's a great weight loss program, you know, I, I <laughs> you know. Um, so Giardia, and a social isolation tool too. <laughs> there you go. So well, more than six feet with Giardia. <laughs> okay. And this and this isn't some uh, three hundred dollar straw. I'm trying to. That seems magical almost to put a straw in your yeah. canteen. Yeah. So the Steri Pen, the UV light one, they're about forty bucks okay. or so, forty to sixty dollars, and you can buy them so that. They have a little uh, rechargeable port on no them that kidding. sticks into a USB drive, and they're pretty small. You just throw them in your backpack, and that way, you know, you don't have to bring a ton of water with you. You just refill on water that's in the stream that you come across. But, you know, once again, when you're planning out your hike, it's helpful to know that you're going to cross some streams. Otherwise, you'll run out of water, and you can't sterilize what you don't have. That's a good point. Okay, Giardia and ankle sprains. No more, yeah. no more trace. What, um... <laughs> yeah. Well, some other things that are important yep. to talk about is, um, you know, definitely bring in snacks and things like that and food. If you're doing longer trips, you got to make sure you bring um, uh, protein sources and fat as well as just your carbs and your bars. That's really important. But other things is to bring your first aid kit. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what to bring because you don't want to bring a big old heavy thing with you, but you also want to have the right tools. Um, so I, I always recommend bringing some Tylenol, bringing some aspirin, and some ibuprofen. And keeping them all in separate containers because some people have allergies to one or all of them, and you don't want to have, you know, aspirin dust on your ibuprofen if somebody has an allergy to it. Mm. And then the other thing that's really important is Benadryl. So a lot of times people can have allergic reactions in the backcountry, and that's one of the more life-threatening conditions you can have. So, um Definitely, if you're somebody who has a history of allergic reactions, bring your EpiPen with you, and that's an adrenaline pen that people who are having a major allergic reaction, what we call anaphylaxis, 
use to help slow that reaction long enough to get to the hospital. Um, But if you don't have that, and that's a prescription-only thing that most people get to carry with them in case they're in an emergency, Benadryl works really well. And so I always have a bunch of Benadryl. And any signs of an allergic reaction, I give people um, some of those and try and work on getting them out of the mountains to the nearest hospital. Yes, I would think that the 50 milligrams of Benadryl is a great thing, and even if you had some prednisone with you. But if you have a history, an EpiPen is indispensable to take with you. Yeah. Yeah, and even if, you know, you yourself aren't worried about getting an allergic reaction, um, but you have a history of it, it's just such a valuable tool because you never know what will happen with anyone else on your team, and you can be in a really powerful position to save their life. And some of the signs of a a severe allergic reaction, um, Mm -hmm. just for everyone who's out there so they know to act earlier rather than later, includes, um, like, itching, hives, and rash. Um, Sometimes the more severe signs can be um, when your whole body starts to get flushed and red and swelling of your lips and mouth. Anything that starts to involve swelling of your face is a sign that things are moving towards a more emergent scenario. And you really want to get that allergic reaction under control because what we as medical professionals always worry about is the mouth and throat swelling so much that you can't breathe. So tamping that allergic reaction down sooner rather than later is vital in saving people's lives. The EpiPen works great, but Benadryl will sure help out. Yes. Given the Benadryl ASCP, 50 milligrams. Um, tell yeah. me about, uh, do you use any particular skin product? You know, a lot of people, you know, on your feet or just your body in general, or is there a super, I know a friend of mine makes some sort of um, outdoor um, sunscreen that has a lot of zinc in it. Um, I can't believe I can't think of the name. It starts with a Z right now. But is there a particular skin product that you use? No, I think most um, sunscreens are... You know, we'll do the trick. Zinc works really great uh, because it provides an actual barrier between your skin and the sun. Um, gives you that oh-so-cool, super, super neon white look, too, that <laughs> gets all the ladies. Um, but it works really well. And then the other thing that's great, uh, I know a lot of people don't like wearing sunscreen. Um, you can buy a lot of different shirts and hats that are UV protectant, and they have fibers in them that help reflect the sun and are also cooling. So those can work at a level of like a 30 or 40 um, sunscreen. So that combined with sunscreen can be really great when you're doing your more extreme sun exposure activities um, and spending a lot of time outdoors. And it's nice from a cooling perspective, too. So I usually recommend both um, sunscreen the, the, and the, As a cooling thing really mm-hmm. yeah um, you can have some lighter they have some nice light sun shirts that have a lot of vents in them now and a lot of times people will dunk them in the stream and then the evaporative cooling off the shirt oh. is really really nice as well and your hat too uh, and there's some other things i wanted to talk about too knowledge being one of the most uh useful resources in the backcountry for when emergencies happen. I want to put a um, plug out for getting CPR trained. Mm. I think 
um, and getting some first aid training. It always can come in handy, even if you're at a poolside resort, sipping on margaritas and relaxing with your friends, or if you're out in the mountains doing something extreme and rugged. Um, things can happen, and having some CPR training and some experience is really helpful for everyone. So. Everybody get trained. Luada told me that they've been doing this EMS CPR training um, for 7th graders. And two Mm -hmm. 7th graders have saved a parent at home from an arrest situation calling 911. I thought that was fascinating. So if two 7th graders can do it, anybody can learn how to do CPR. And it certainly is helpful for that time until you can get somebody, um, you know, shocked. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, along the lines of knowledge helping you, um, it's also helpful to kind of be able to recognize when things are going wrong and what to do in those situations, even outside of a CPR situation, like with heat stroke and Mm -hmm. um, dehydration or um, if you're hyper uh, hyper hypothermic, those scenarios can be important to recognize and ideally prevent, but um, you can have some really powerful knowledge of what to do in those circumstances. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that if you okay, have sure. time. Mm-hmm. Go for it. So uh, as far as heat stroke, which I feel is pretty relevant to our area because it's hot and toasty out there, um, some things to keep in mind is that there's different stages when you're starting to get heat stroke um, or just overheated. You can get that early stages include the prickly rash, um, getting cramps, getting a little confused, and um, you know, sweating a lot and being really thirsty. And then later stages, your organs actually start to shut down and um, confusion is one of the first signs of that. And so you start to get even more confused. You're having um, trouble peeing and um, even to the point to where um, really sort of end stages, you're, you stop sweating because your ability to regulate your temperature is um, severely diminished because uh, your body's organs are shutting down. So if you're starting to get hot and sweaty and you're starting to get a little out of it and weak and muscle cramps, um, it's an important thing to keep in mind that you need to cool yourself down really quickly or cool someone else in your team down really quickly. Um, having them drink a bunch of water, eat salty snacks, that can help with regulating the electrolytes in your body oh. that are starting to go out of whack. And then really the most important thing is cooling. So um, if you're near a stream, dunk them in a stream. Obviously, don't let them drown because they're confused. <laughs> um, but, you know, get them cooled. Um, if you have cold, anything cold near you, um, some areas to but ice packs can be in the armpits and the inner thighs, and really an ice bath is the way to go, but that's assuming you're near something like an ice bath. But cooling them off is the most important thing, and then really trying to get them to um, an intensive care unit is the next, and, next step. And is you know, I just saw this thing about this lady that was um, in Mount Zion for two weeks lost, and they said that she had hit her head on a branch or was had a small mm. concussion and obviously she got dehydrated and i can see once you're confused you're just a lamb in the wilderness you don't have much of a you know 
ability to do much. I didn't think about the dehydration would make you so confused that that probably takes away your ability to help yourself get out of the jam. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, if someone else is confused on your team or having a hard time thinking straight, you really got to keep a close eye on them and help prevent them from hurting themselves by doing something else or wandering away. But if it's you, boy, that's a hard spot to be in because, of course, you're doing your best to survive. And if your faculties aren't with you, you're in trouble. Is there a certain amount of water that you, you know, should you drink a quart in the morning, a quart in the afternoon, or is there some, you know, scenario that you, uh, for your water intake? You know, it depends on where you're, the weather where you're hiking and um, how hot it is outside and, um, you know, kind of what, what you're doing. It's a pretty big range, um, but definitely having enough water uh, is important. And a lot of different places that you can go to um, visit, like I just got back from the Grand Canyon, they recommended, you know, having three to six liters of water, um, you know, for a couple-hour period because it was so hot there. But, you know, Whoa. if you're hiking somewhere where it's colder then and you're not, you know, doing as extreme an amount of activity, you can get away with one or two liters. But still, even in the cooler situations, you think you should have a couple of liters on you. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, plan ahead. If it's going to be a big trip, you bring a lot of water or bring a way to filter water and, re and make sure you have spots to refill, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, other things that are important is if you're too cold. So we talked about if you're too hot. If you're too cold, obviously the goal is warming you up. Things that can be really helpful in a snowy situation include um, sharing body heat. So ideally, you have a bunch of jackets and warm things with you. Um, but if you are in a camping situation, sharing body heat is also really important. So sharing a sleeping bag with someone um, to help warm their body up is good. And then sometimes right before, like an intense um, frostbite in your toes and your fingers, you lose the feeling um, because your nerves are actually dying, and some people will suddenly start to feel warm in their toes and fingers, and they'll take off their gloves and boots. And that, of course, makes the hyperthermia and um, frostbite worse. So don't, don't take off your boots and gloves, even if you're starting to feel warm. And really just trying your best to protect those um, tiny little digits that don't get a lot of blood flow and are the first to get cold because those are your survival tools, walking out on your feet and using your hands to get things done. So, yeah, you hear about finding people in the cold that have taken off their clothes, and that never seemed, you know, it seemed phenomenal to me that yeah. they, they had that sort of strange reaction. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why. Um, some other things that are more prevalent in our area include Lyme disease and ticks. Mm, so doing oh those goodness. tick checks, really important. Hiking around in the grass, those little ticks love to hop on you. I'm sure we've all experienced this and crawl into those dark places that we don't usually check. So getting to know yourself all nice and personal, bending over in front of the mirror and making sure you don't have any ticks in your cracks is really, really important. Um they have to usually be on there for about 48 hours before they spread Lyme disease. 
And so the sooner you find the tick and the sooner you get it off, the less likelihood you're going to get Lyme. And um, that can have a lot of a lot of complications associated with it. So plug out for um, tick checks. And, and and sometimes um, you don't see you don't see the ticks because it's the nymph form. So if you get a mm-hmm. rash, I think it's ten days later or something, an expanding bullseye. Uh, that's probably your you know the rash from Lyme disease, and that's something that treated early. I think you know does quite well. But you prevention, prevention. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. That's a great point. And then other things in our area include poison oak, tons of poison oak, and I'm sure everybody's real familiar with that. Uh, sleeves of three, let them be. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing about poison oak is that you don't usually know you get the rash uh, until three days later. And that's for most people. If you're super sensitive to it and you've been exposed to it a lot, sometimes you can get the rash even earlier. But the way the rash works is that your body actually um, starts attacking the particles of the poison oak oil, and it takes three days for that full reaction to form, and then you get the rash. So that's why there's what we call a delayed reaction. And so something that can help with that is washing. So you come across some poison oak, it scratches you or you think you might have touched it on accident or it's on your clothes and, you know, you just, like, rubbed your clothes and then scratched your face, go down to the water right away and or use your water bottle and start washing it off because it's this oil. And the less oil your body is exposed to of that poison oak, the less of a reaction you're going to have. So even if you don't have soap on you or Technu or anything like that, you can just start washing it off and that can help reduce the reaction you're going to have. And then the other thing that I just recently learned is um, any kind of soap will do the job. Technu doesn't work any better than really? um, any other soap. Yeah. Yeah, they just did a study on that. And so save your money, save the environment. Don't use the super NAR stuff if you don't need to. And um, just wash off the soap right away as soon as you can. It's usually something I bring with me when I hike in poison oak area especially camp in a poison oak area just before i get into my sleeping bag and tent i go out and wash off with some soap and try not to get it good idea we're i'm going to take a second here and introduce uh haley rosek how was that um, okay. Uh, she's a second year uh, resident in the family practice program. She's a physician who you can see in the office as a patient if you wish. You can call the hospital and get an appointment. They have um, their own practices uh, as well as their hospital work. And we're talking about wilderness medicine. Um, and we'll start taking your calls if you want. Um yeah, I had a quick question, though, okay. Haley. If uh, in the earlier circumstances that we were talking about, say you drink uh, some water and get a bug or you roll your ankle and you're uh, alone, which it sounds like with you keep talking about teams, that you don't recommend hiking alone. But if you are alone, uh, what's your what's your first course of action? Because you're not going to be able to necessarily get yourself out. You're going to be dependent on a rescue team. Um, what, what, what do you recommend as far as worrying about other things that may come up and as well preparing yourself for some sort of a rescue? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, great question. And, 
you know, I, it's certainly easier to hike as teams, but I hike alone all the time. And really, you know, just any chance to get outdoors is wonderful. Um, when you are in an emergency situation like that and you realize all of a sudden you have that moment of like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble and I need, you know, I'm going to need some help or I'm going to have a hard time getting out, you got to start assessing what resources you have, um, looking for a place where there's shelter. If you're out somewhere where it's windy and exposed is really important, somewhere where you can stay warm. Um, if you can get a bunch of water nearby you, that's really important because, you know, if you have Giardia, you're going to be pooping a lot and you're going to need to replace all the water you're losing through diarrhea. Um, uh, trying to find food, and that can be challenging, but water is the most important thing that you have. You can live many days without food on your fat stores. Um, if you have broken a limb or an ankle um, or sprained something, using something like the ACE bandages and your hiking poles or twigs, or they have this thing called a SAM splint, which is a little piece of aluminum and foam, to really brace your ankle, your knee, or whatever is broken to help hold it in a more comfortable straight position to help you maneuver as you try and get out is really important to do. Um, anything to try and keep it rigid and in place can be helpful from a pain perspective, but also from a just survival helping you move around perspective. Um, other things include taking Tylenol and ibuprofen for pain. And then the most important thing is stay put. So as a search and rescue Team, a former search and rescue team member, a lot of times people wander around and try and find um, where they're, uh, try and find a way out. And oftentimes it just gets you more lost. And so I always recommend staying put before you leave. Generally, you tell people, somebody you trust, where you're headed. And then if you don't come back, they know where you're headed. You're generally staying put, and the search and rescue teams have a spot to look for you using things like bright clothing in the day if you don't need it to, um, you know, lay out in the clearing so the helicopter, when it's flying over, can see you can be really helpful as well. Um, but don't don't wander off and get even more hurt either. I, I thought you were going to say, oh, well, go to some open space uh, that you can be seen by the helicopter, but staying on the trail is the safest thing for you, huh? Yeah, stand where people might find you. Stand in the general region that you told someone else, um, and trying your best to preserve yeah. your energy and your resources for what may take a couple days for people to find you. Yeah, and tell somebody where you're going. Yeah, and then if you want to be more techie, um, they have these great devices now that are satellite. Uh, devices and they're small, maybe the size uh, smaller than your cell phone and lighter than your cell phone, probably a third or so. And they have satellite capability and texting capability. And so a lot of us will wear those when we go do something alone or um, a more extreme trip where we have a higher likelihood of getting hurt or just on a day hike. And so, you know, you get injured or you just want to communicate with someone, you can send them a GPS location of where you're at, tell them the problem, and they can send help right away. Um, and some of them just also have a button that you can press that says help now and sends the um, coordinates to your nearest search and rescue team. So those are that wonderful resources. Sounds to like to. a good idea because most cell phones won't work, right? Yeah, we have yeah. A, especially we have if you're going... Remote places, 
Okay, we have a phone question for you. Mm-hmm. Caller, you're on the air. Yes, hi there. Thank you so very much. This is very useful information. But there are two things that I that you haven't uh, mentioned yet. One would be a hatchet or an axe, so that in the event, if you can mark your trail as you go, you know, either bend, uh, bend, you know, it's like the Hansel and Gretel leaving popcorn, that okay. won't work. But if you can one? tie, tie uh-huh. a ribbon or, you know, a piece of yarn or some, some way to indicate which direction you're, you are, that's helpful. And also, how do you feel about building a fire? And I, when you first started, I thought you were okay. going to be talking about medicine plants. Okay. Uh, in our Mendocino forest, there are many, I've learned so much from the Cotto people good 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 questions so tell us do you do you carry a hatchet when you go camping hiking i don't carry a hatchet when i go camping i do carry a knife um the marking of territory or marking your path when you are trying to search for somewhere else to go or trying to orient yourself it can be very helpful and we certainly as search and rescue team members will do that with a piece of string or uh, ribbon or something like that if you have that available that's ideal um, and you know when we're tracking people we're looking at their footprint we're looking for signs of uh, disturbed brush and certainly if you've made a mark that can be helpful um, as well especially if you're going off trail um, and then, you know, yeah, setting fires, fires that can be tricky, um, given how fire prone our area is, um, it's, it's the balance. Um, sometimes you need to be able to start a fire for your own warmth, but certainly don't want to end up in a situation where the brush conditions are right now, where I would never, ever recommend starting a fire unless your life depended upon it um, because it can get out of control and then your life can be over real quick. So it's, it's a hard balance. Certainly if you're in the middle of a snow field and you find some dry um, wood and you're worried about freezing to death, um, starting a fire to help you stay warm in those circumstances is, is vital. And so having matches or lighter or things like that are really helpful. Or even if you wear glasses, you can use the sunlight from um, your glasses to shine through really? and magnify and make heat and start a fire. That, oh, way too. that sounds pretty tricky. If people want to call, the number is 895-2448, 895-2448. You know, the third point that you brought up was the um, 1,600 different, you know, homeopathic you know, but I've heard of all kinds of things uh, that, you know, you can, you know, when I hike with my wife, her dad was a, a science teacher and took kids out in the wilderness. And it was interesting that she'll point out this and that for different things. Is there one or two specific things that really are helpful to you? You know, I am new to the Mendocino plant life and would love to learn more from the local experts and different Native communities who have generations of knowledge to share and um, expertise, but I don't really know anything about that and um, think that that's really, really a powerful tool and resource that um, would love to learn more about. I also, uh, if you don't mind, I want to put a shout-out for the Ukiah Valley Trail Group. Um, um, uh, Neil, Andrea Davis... Uh, have worked a lot. Uh, we started when they were in the emergency room uh, trying to make the trails around Lake Mendocino better. And um, 
every Saturday, I think it's the second Saturday of every month, they do a trail group where a bunch of people get together. This is something they do with their masks on. They stay away from each other. But they've gotten back, and they've done a lot of work um, in the city. There's a trail uh, leading out from the golf course around Lake Mendocino and different areas. And I think that the you know that sort of camaraderie, uh, getting the trails in great shape, and then people like ourselves can go enjoy them is a great public service. Yeah, thank you for all your hard work, team. That's amazing. Here's another Look phone call. To exploring those yeah, trails Ukiah, more. Ukiah Valley Trail Group. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, I have a question about uh, poison oak. Um, I I can be in long pants with my ankles taped with duct tape around my boots <laughs> and long sleeve shirt with a tape around gloves, so I never come in contact with it. But two or three days later, on the inside of my elbows and the back of my knees, without fail, huh. I'll start to get a kind of an itchy. It's not even a rash. It just itches really, really bad. Um, I've, I've noticed that when I work with poison oak, clearing it or whatever, I can smell it. It smells kind of lemony, patchouli, dirty, you know, lemon dirt smell. So huh. just wondering about okay. that aspect of poison oak. oak. All right. Any yeah. advice? So um, props to you for your your efforts in clearing that stuff. It's some nasty, <laughs> nasty stuff. Um, and the tape around the ankles and gloves, that's clutch. My thoughts would be um, your may, your clothes may be saturated with um, the oil, but depending upon how much you're working with it, and it may start to leach through the oil. The oil may start to leach through your pants um, in different areas. Uh, the three days later is the classic for you know exposure to the poison oak um, oils. The other thing uh, to keep in mind is when you're taking off your clothes. I've gotten it certainly from taking off my clothes normally and not being super careful to where the outside of my clothes will touch my skin, and then I'll get it that way. Um, The other thing that can help is, you know, which I'm sure you probably already do, is immediately going home and showering, certainly not getting into bed or touching anything after you've been out hiking um, can help reduce the areas that you're spreading the oil unconsciously and then coming into contact with it later. Okay, we uh, gotta, the other we, thing that might be oh, going oh. on is heat rash. You might just be reacting oh. from a bunch of heat in the back of your knees and elbows, Good too. point. We have one more call for you. Rash. You might just be oh, reacting oh. from a bunch oh. of heat in the Turn back of your knees Turn down your radio. Elbows. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, could she go back, please, and give the names or where we can find the straw she talked about to filter your water and then what the name of that pen is it has a light that sterilizes your water yeah okay she can say that again uh, in the other conversation i thought that was fascinating that he actually may be having a heat rash from all the clothes and taping rather than poison oak yeah, that might be part of it. The fact that it happens three days later mm. uh, makes me think it's more okay. poison oak oriented, and you might just need some thicker clothes or different clothes or to wash them a couple times with hot soapy water before you wear them, but it could also be the heat rash, too. And, and you, um, s- you see people like him in the emergency department. There are some people that are so sensitive to this stuff that they, they, they just explode. It's amazing. Their eyes shut. 
you know, it's just amazing how sensitive some people are to poison oak. Yeah, you can um, get it from third-degree contact. My friend is super sensitive to it, and I can go for a hike, sit in the car, and my clothes will touch the car, and then she can sit in that same spot, and she will get poison oak from where she sat, where I sat. So, man, if you're real sensitive to it, you just got to be ultra-careful. And, of course, if you're hiking with dogs, it's real hard not to pet their cute little buns and faces, and then, oh, you have an itch on your face, the next thing you know, you've got poison oak. Especially with dogs, you got to be careful. We have another call, and we'll go back to the straw. You have an itch on your face, the next thing you know, you've got poison oak. Okay, turn your radio down, and you're on the air. What's your question? Hi, I called a minute ago about the straw and the uh, light to yep. sterilize the butter, okay. and I never heard the answer. Yep. Could she we, go over we, that, please? Yeah, we were about sure. to get. We were about to get to that. We just want to finish the last question. Tell her. Tell her about the straw again. Yeah. So the straw that you can get, there's a bunch of them out there, and they go pretty tiny. Um, there's pretty tiny in their filter. One of them is called the life straw. And so they first developed that um, when trying to filter out parasites in water resource-poor areas in um, Africa. And so, you know, filtration systems are heavy and clunky and break, but a straw is pretty dang simple. And so they handed those out in um, rural Africa to stop the spread of um, a type of parasite that can... um, cause a lot of pain when it comes in and out of your skin. And so this straw they found to be really beneficial for preventing waterborne illness and a lot of other scenarios. And it's so light, so light tech that you can just use it anywhere. Um, so that's called the light straw. And the other one is called the SteriPen, S-T-R-I-P-E-N. And there's a, a you know, that's, those are just the brands that I'm familiar with, but there's a bunch of versions of them. And it's a UV light that you spin in the bottle um, to help sterilize the water before you drink it. And the, you know, challenge with the UV light one is you still have some particles in the water, but they're all sterilized, so you can drink them and you'll be just fine. But it's not the pristine-looking clear water that you may get if you filtered it. So, um, But it's super fast super reliable. The only challenge is if your battery runs out, but I usually, for long trips, bring a backup water filtration system anyway, a little hand pump or something along those lines. Or they have um, gravity pumps now, too, where they're um, a little bit thicker ceramic, and they're about the size of a straw, and you can hang a bag on top, let gravity draw the water Uh through the filter, and then drip into your water bottle. Fascinating. Those are other options, too. You got another call. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. This is uh, Cassie. Um, Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, Hi there. Yeah, I just wanted, I was reflecting um, junior high class that I did in school um, in the late 70s with Mrs. Wilson, first aid and survival. And everything that we, she taught us could fit in a secrets tin. Um, and I'm remembering these items, um, waterproof matches that were dipped in wax to stay dry, a small piece of glass to be able to start a fire, um, fishing line and hook, and chlorine tablets, and a drop cloth that can be used to keep you dry or help keep you warm, but also to collect water. And how we did that was imagine 
a bowl with a piece of cellophane on top. We would dig a little hole in the ground and fill it with whatever greenery, grass or shrubs or any kind of green um, um, leaves. And then in the bottom of a pit, put something to collect water. You could use your secrets tin. And so put the um, drop cloth on top and then make it um, kind of go down with a rock in the middle. And what happens is overnight, the condensation from the greenery makes uh, water and it will drip into your water collector if you have no other water. Very, very good. Let's see what she says about those things. Those are all great resources. Thanks for bringing that up. I love the condensation, especially in the desert when it's real dry out. Believe it or not, you can still get stuff to condensate. And that's a wonderful, wonderful resource. And uh, I guess I like the piece of glass uh, thing also. What it, yeah, that's along the lines of your, you know, reading glasses and things like that to help magnify the light to start the fire. Also, sometimes people will bring a little mirror or use the mirror that can be attached to a compass to signal the helicopter that's flying over uh, to. Um, that's a great it's easier idea. to see bright, shiny things. Bright, shiny things. Haley, what about uh, running into critters and the creepy crawlers? Uh, not necessarily a bear or anything, but just little things like you mentioned, uh, uh, the, the, the ticks and so forth. What if you're affected by it once you're out there again? What 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 do you recommend for trying to uh, maybe clear out the poison or whatever you've, you've run into? Yeah, so that's a, a real challenge. There's quite the debate over where to suck out the poison or, or not. From my understanding, they haven't had a lot of research that shows that sucking out the poison is very effective, um, that you don't necessarily get much poison out, and you can just introduce more bacteria with your mouth. Um, but I would be happy to be corrected by an expert on, um, you know, envenomation and snakes. Um, that's as far as I know, the best method is to stay away. Typically, most uh, snake bites are by people who are received by people who are having a good time in the woods, having a little too much to drink, find a cool snake, want to like look at it or play at it, and then you accidentally get bit. So, trying to leave leave those things alone is your best um, your best defense. But certainly, accidents happen, and once you get bit by a snake or a spider or something else, you you know you definitely start looking at trying to get out of your out of the woods and back to the hospital as soon as possible. That's funny. In the ER, um, it's known that seventy five percent of snake bites are in men in their twenties who have been drinking and the bites are on their hand. Yeah, <laughs> something is can't pretty... resist playing with something cool when you're. You know, all disinhibited on Bud Light. Right, Bud Light, while you're trying to hike and be healthy. Um, (laughs) We're just having a good time with your friends in the woods. Okay. One thing that, you know, you go into REI, I've never seen so many snacks, food sources, et cetera, et cetera. And the one thing you said, you said fats. I mean, is that cashews or tell us more about really what do you actually bring when you go on a hike? Is it jerky? Is it cashews? Is it uh, chocolate milk, Dr. Pepper? (laughs) Well, nothing that needs to be refrigerated do I usually bring on a hike. So chocolate milk would be a big X-nay on that, unless it's like powdered. Um, 
But when it's just a day hike, you know, your body is pretty good at storing up um, nutrition when you've been eating your regular food. So it doesn't matter as much for a day hike as long as you bring enough. As long as you bring stuff for snacks and uh, enough food to kind of keep your blood sugar up while you're walking. Because as you're walking and burning energy, you're burning that sugar up in your blood, which is one of the reasons why we tell people with diabetes, after you have a meal, go out, go for a walk, and that'll help bring that blood sugar down. And so as long as you're bringing enough food um, for a day hike, I think you should be fine. If you start doing things that are more involved, like a couple-week trip or multi-day stuff and um, looking more into having um, fats and protein as a source, um, it's really important, too, because it's easy to buy all the tasty bars and packaged oatmeal and things like that. But making sure you have a lot of nuts, like you mentioned, cashews are a great source. They have little packages of peanut butter that are really light or almond mm. butter, and that can have a lot of fat and protein in it, too. And then your dried rice and beans is also a great resource for dinner. And then they have all those freeze-dried packaged foods, which can be really yummy, Um but expensive, so you can do your own with um, a good old thrift store dehydrator. You can find a lot of recipes online to create a bunch of tasty treats to bring with you that are light and nutritious. The other thing, one other thing, uh, last um, couple of years ago, before I got my cardiac stent, um, my friends asked me if they wanted to go, if I wanted to go, go on a hike with them uh, in September uh, outside of Fresno. And so they drove for a day, and we parked at this 5,000-foot elevation thing and, you know, slept in our tents. And then two days later, I was going over a 12,000-foot peak. Um, this was a little bit of a strain for me. It was the Crater Lake or Lake uh, mm -hmm. String of yeah. Lakes area. And um, I just want people to realize that uh, be sure you know what people are telling you when they want you to go for a hike with them. You know, that five days, I'm surprised they didn't, you know, ex you know, that I made it through that. Um, but um, you ought to get prepared before you go on the hike some because it's it's harder than it looks, especially with elevation. Or is there some rule that you have? Uh, don't go higher than this. And then there was my second point is there was a group in the ER that went hiking and one of the people got into trouble from cerebral edema. And I think it was just... Um, you know, Mount Shasta or something. I was surprised, but they actually had trouble with the elevation. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Elevation is something I wanted to talk about that didn't. Um, it's, you know, it can be really, really challenging because the air is getting up there. Up there is getting real thin, and it can start, you can start to have all these side effects, especially if, like, after you, you just, you know, had a heart issue, but your heart is pump in that oxygenated blood throughout your body and if you know your pump's a little compromised from recent stress then you're not able to pump enough oxygen throughout and you're more susceptible to altitude especially if you know you're um, not ready for it or acclimatized to it and so I definitely think sleeping at higher elevations a couple days before you start a big um, trip can help your body start to get used to the lower oxygen and start to upregulate different things. It'll help you cope with the low oxygen of high altitude. Training is really important and not just 
um, physically training at sea level, that's important too, but training at higher altitudes. Once again, just to let your whole body get used to um, needing more oxygen and working harder to get that oxygen in. Um, That's super, super important. And some of the signs and symptoms of getting altitude sickness can be when you're not um, as hungry and you're not as thirsty, you really got to push yourself to eat and drink because your body's just kind of struggling and not focusing on that, but really needs sugar and water to help keep um, regulating itself and keep taking care of itself. So really pushing that, even if you're starting to feel a little nauseous, which is another sign of high altitude, shortness of breath, headache, some of the real more severe signs can be if you start to get a really gnarly headache or um, confusion or spots or dots in your vision. That's at the point to where you need to turn around. Um, and the quickest way to get better from altitude sickness is go down the mountain and get out of that high altitude. Um, they have different medications that can help you. Uh, prepare before your trip, including one of them's a diuretic called acetazolamide. And you can find those at um, a lot of different stores or talk to your doc about it before you go on a big trip, but it can help kind of change, shift the electrolytes in your body so that you can cope with the altitude better. And that can be a useful resource as well. And are you, are you talking that is there some sort of elevation people who aren't in good shape shouldn't go over 5,000 feet or eight or 10,000 feet? Or when do people mostly get into trouble? Or You know, it, it depends on your body and what you're used to. I certainly have patients who are um, used to living at higher elevations and have, um, you know, blood. certain conditions, mm-hmm. and they do fine at those elevations because their body's used to it. Um, and, you know, it, it really just depends on your body and what you're used to and how healthy you are. And um, one other point that I didn't mention and I'm happy you brought up is to really be aware of what your overall health status is and your medical conditions before you go do something big, making sure you have enough of your regular meds with you if you get stuck or you get lost, especially those life-critical meds like cardiac meds, um, and really just you know, choosing a team of people who will have your back and won't sandbag you and take you somewhere super crazy and get you into rough situations, you know. Yeah, I talked to Roger about that, right. And your view of uh, hiking poles. Yeah, Um, hiking poles, uh, some people love them, some people hate them. Uh, I, you know, like them for really rough terrain They can help you Uh, be more focused and have other points of stability when you're doing a lot of steps. Like in the Grand Canyon, I just used them a bunch, and they totally helped stabilize my knees and keep me from rolling my ankles. Um, And then stream crossings are really great when you're, like, balancing on a log or on slippery surfaces. It's nice to have another couple um, points. And then using ski poles or an ice axe when you're doing icy snowy stuff can also be really helpful. But if you're doing a short day hike and you don't want to carry more stuff and you don't feel like you need them, leave them behind. Thank, but thank they can you. also work as tent poles and uh, braces if you break your leg. So Very good. Then too. Introduce yourself, and we're going to sign off. All right. I'm uh, Dr. Haley Ralsick, and I'm one of the family medicine residents at the Ukiah Valley um, family medicine residency here in Ukiah, and I'm super honored to have 
gotten to talk with you about something that's so fun and that I love, and I really appreciate your time. Great show. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a good day.